like there are kids out there every day that lose their parents for no good reason other than just life, right? Yeah. Cancers and just whatever it is. Uh, so for me, especially in the longer perspective of life, of that my dad died for something, right? That it, it changed what we what we do and what the, the fire department does. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where the views and opinions expressed are mine and those of the guests. Today, um, I'm sitting down with my brother, Chris Pierce, and uh, he and I have a great conversation about special operations. Uh, we talked about leadership, leadership on the mountain, leadership in the firehouse, talked about training, and we uh, end our conversation talking about uh, Ricky Pierce, his dad who died in the line of duty and how that impacted him. Uh, wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Get some. So Chris, tell me a little bit about yourself. Give me Just tell me the kind of background of who you are, where you grew up, why you're a firefighter, and uh, give me the uh, backdrop. So as you said, uh, my name is Chris Pierce. Uh, I'm a uh, captain with the Phoenix Fire Department. I've been on coming up on my 20 years here r- rapidly in January, uh, which has been crazy, crazy, just snap of the fingers in there. That was. Uh-huh. Uh, so my kind of history is I, I was grew up here for the first chunk of my life uh, in Phoenix. Uh, my dad was a Phoenix firefighter, which I, you know, we'll probably get into a little bit more. Ricky Pierce, who was killed in, in the land of duty in 1984. Uh, so after that, uh, I spent a little time uh, kind of around the country. I spent a few years in 29 Palms, California in uh, the early to late eighties. Uh, went from there to Norfolk, Virginia, there for a handful of years. And then back to Arizona where I lived in Prescott, <laughs> for a few years and then came back down to Phoenix at around that high school age. Uh, and that's really where I started to, like, I always had the desire, you know, of of coming back and and being on the job. Uh, like I, I had that bug pretty early, I think in my life, but really when I came back down here at about that age is where I started to, to commit to doing that process. And so, yeah, you get into high school, you start thinking about what, what life looks like as an adult, right? Yes. What, what am I going to do with myself? Yes, and as, uh, you know, anyone that's on the job or has, you know, been in the process of getting hired, that I mean, once you decide to do that, it's a commitment. And so it's like it was, you know, one of the things that I needed, especially at that time in my life, was a good, solid direction to focus on and and move that way, so... And then here we are <laughs> 20 years later. So tell me about, so you are to so tell me what you do for the fire department right now. You're, I know you're not, uh, you know, you and I met at station 12, you know, playing with ropes and thrashing and dangling. Um, when did you get into special ops? You got there before I did. Yeah. So I've, uh, I've been at station 12, I, again, 10 years ago, uh, this month. So I went to station 12 in, uh, September of 2009 and, uh, started the, which was a big, kind of changed for me. I'd been on engines for nine years, uh, very little ladder experience. And so coming into to station 12 and having it be such a new piece of the career for me mm. of uh, ladder work was new, TRT and ropes was, was new. Of course, just like everyone else, you're kind of in that time frame that you're starting to look at the next promotional process or what you want to do with the, the second half of your career. Right. And for me, coming to Station 12 and having that big change really, uh, 
I don't want to say it brought the love of the job back, but it's just, it reinvigorated it, right? You're like, I found a new challenge. I found something else to focus my energies on. And uh, it was, was and has been one of the best decisions that I've ever made in my entire career was, was going there. Uh, so spent five years there in the back seat, uh, learning that, that side of it, then promoted out and about. And I always kind of knew that I wanted to come back to that station and finish that, you know, that, that circle outright of moving from the back seat in the front seat of that. Yeah. What's interesting is that's actually hard to do in our organization, right? Cause the, the, uh, the desire to be a company officer and a special operations station, there's, there's not a whole lot of spots. No. And, um, so for you to leave, um, you know, get promoted or go in it, go be at 12, get promoted, leave 12 and find your way back. In a um, really a relatively short time frame. Yeah, yeah. Right. Pretty fortuitous and lucky. Yes. Um, absolutely. Yeah, pretty pretty neat opportunity <laughs> for you. Um Yeah, you gonna leave? Ever? Uh there's a very small windows of, of places that I would look to go, still within special operations. And again, it's the same deal. Uh most of that is that looking for that next challenge of of maybe squad work. Really my my long term hopes, life goals and all that stuff is to, uh, to maybe move into the nine five seven role or something like that. Right. Uh, Which for anybody who's not acquainted with our system is, is a, uh, special operations, uh, safety officer. Yeah. And the, the really hard thing about, especially that position more than anything else, because again, there's only two of them per shift at this point in time is I might have a desire to do it. And depending on how that window that I really don't even know what it is yet right? of other people around me with the similar seniority that wanted it, it may or may not happen. Like it's just kind of that where you're at in timing. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. Your personal preparation and organizational opportunity don't always align. Yes. And so, you know, there's that, the, the thing with 12 that I love being there, we go and we hike the mountain and it's, uh, that's like, that's kind of the, the thing that you do there. It's just, you, you go there with that level of understanding that you're going to be on the mountain more than you're going to do any other aspect of the, the job other than, than EMS. Yeah. So it's interesting is that, you know, we, um, you know, in our special operations community here in, in the Valley, one of the predominant, uh, things that station 12 does, you know, first response is to Camelback mountain and then, you know, into Spiastola Peak. And that that response requirement, you know, you have got to be dialed in on your rope work um, and you've got to be physically and emotionally prepared to go up that mountain uh, in the heat of the summer. And uh, I know that's one of the big, you know, when, in the time that I spent there, one of the things that we, you know, I discovered was that we get a lot of folks who seem to be uh, lured in by this beautiful mountain Absolutely. in the middle of the city and they uh, underestimate the difficulty of the strenuousness of the of the hiking and the technicalness of it you know yes. the technical nature of it and then uh, and how long you might actually be exposed uh, uh, out on the trail and there's no water spigots on the trail right no yeah so, there's no no extra water up there uh, especially the the camelback mountain on the echo side like that that to me is not at all like a hiking trail. Like when you go almost right. anywhere else in the country and you have is the the hiking trail, right? Right. You're not climbing up boulders in the middle of the hiking trail to to move forward. <laughs> right. Where where that it's a it's something different. 
Yeah. And yeah. There's a little bit of scrambling involved, right? Some yeah. high stepping and scrambling and boulders. And so, yeah, yeah it, I even season people that hike, especially that come in from around the country that aren't one aware of our weather patterns. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then two that, you know, you, again, you have this, this beautiful mountain that everyone's like, Oh man, you need to go and hike Camelback mountain because of great views from the top of it. And it kind of a very right. neat, uh, spot to get to. And again, it's, you know, people come in to overcome challenges and that, you know, again, test themselves, test themselves, right. not, well, not a great it, place to start your test. It is an iconic feature of the, of the Phoenix Valley. Yes. Um, you know, and, and so you show up here on vacation and you're in town, like you, that mountain is the one you want to go hike. Yeah. Um, you know, when it's only a couple mile long trail, but that's what but, everyone there, like it's, it's only uh, like a mile and a quarter to the top, but it's, right. it's all up <laughs> yeah very vigorous so um so let me ask you this though from a technical perspective i have my thoughts on this but i want to hear your opinion what do you think is the the biggest challenge on that mountain for us as as special operations operators really the that place is the thing that's so unique about it is it has everything like you can't if you comb into it it was just that single discipline mindset on it of hey, we're going to pull people off the trail. Uh, you you know those calls are relatively easy, but you need everything in your toolbox almost all the time there because depending on where you're at, if you're low on the mountain, we can just carry you off. But if you get even up just uh, more than about halfway up the mountain, everything from that point on is technical. Like right. getting everything that we do on that mountain past. 50 past with us for the anyone that knows that mountain the rail system it becomes technical if we're going to get you down the rail system we're going to build systems and use ropes or right. we're going to use helicopters like that's uh and that's just on the regular trails plus you have this there's uh sport climbing all over the mountain uh and the trail system has improved its marking system but there's also a lot of really easy ways to get down these kind of side canyons on it and it's pretty easy to get lost on yeah. and then now you've put yourself into a spot that's it looks natural to go down until you get into a bad spot and you look back up and the scramble back up is life-changing <laughs> right uh and so i think the, for me i think the biggest challenge is just that that it's so easy to reach a point on that mountain that it becomes a legitimate rescue and that's why we have so many in in what we would consider a true technical rescue on that mountain right yeah it's interesting how we'll find yourself uh we find people on these cliff bands or off on strange locations and you think man how did that person get drawn into this uh or how do they get how do they get lured down this draw on yeah. the side of the mountain to a cliff band and you realize that oh at some point they got heat exhaustion or they ran out of water and when you when the sun starts to set and you look down the mountain, you see houses that appear to be right there, right there. within a short strut. And, and, you know, as the crow flies, they are right there. Um, so you begin to, you go off the path. The path is, you know, there's a, there's a good trail system and it is marked fairly well. However, there are spots where, like you said, you, you look and you see this house and you're like, it, it's only 300 yards away. I can get there and I'm yes. desperate. And so you start down this, this chute off the side of the mountain, which is very tenable. Yes. At the beginning. <laughs> but for somebody who's disoriented and dehydrated, what a, a potent nightmare. And, you know, we've, we've tragically lost 
lots of folks who have found themselves uh, going down that path and they can't, they can't recover. And by the time they are noticed to be missing or, and, and, uh, you know, we can get up there, they're long expired. Yeah. And, you know, and so the, the fire department and the parks department, they've tried to do a pretty good job with that, you know, take a hike, do it right thing. But that doesn't go out over the airwaves a ton. Right. And we have a lot of tourist activity. Like, I'm not going to say that we never rescue locals off that mountain. Most of the time we take locals off, they've legitimately just overextended themselves. Yeah. Uh, but you get that, you know, that out of towner that comes through, there's pictures of, of going and hiking these places the your hotel that you're staying at will shuttle you there and give you your half a bottle of water and smack you on the butt. <laughs> yeah, a okay, little four yeah. ounce bottle of water. Yeah, go go get it. Yeah. Uh, and so that's you know, there's good signage down at the bottom, but again, who just like anything else, who stops to read every big bright yellow sign <laughs> that says danger on it? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh And so. But the challenge is it's just like everything else in the job, right? If if that mountain was if just a perfect scenario and we never went there, well, then you'd lose that piece of fun of what we get to do is, you know. Oh. I still get to hike the mountain for a living, and people making bad decisions allow oh. me to do that. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part, right? Like I always, I, I say this on a regular basis, you know, like I do not wish ill will on anybody. No. But if it's going to happen... Let it happen on my shift. Yes, absolutely. Right. That's what we've been trained to do. That comes back to that desire to use your skills that you've spent your your lifetime studying and perfecting and trying to improve on. And so when those skills just sit, you're like, oh, I've got all this potential skill that I could use. And then right. it just it kind of sits back there and it either fades away because you didn't see a need for it and you've allowed those skills to go away or you find that thing that, that – like, oh man, I need to, not only do I need to, to get to this level, I need to find something that pushes me to that next step of, of improvement and knowledge and, and all that stuff. And that's kind of what those mountains do for us there, or at least for me anyway. Yeah. No, I think there's definitely a refinement and an opportunity uh, in those skills by being in a place where you, you know, get those reps. Yes. You know, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, being at twelve is um, is definitely a a refiner's fire, right? <laughs> you get to get you get the reps, and you are going to spend time on the mountain. You are going to have to make difficult decisions with critical patients on a regular basis. Yeah, you know, on on the various peaks that are all around that area, there is always an opportunity. There is lots of opportunities in training time, you know, because of the call volume there to be engaged in legitimate mountain rescues. And that's a, you know, that's very rewarding to be able to know that you have the opportunity to use, you know, use your true skill set. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, that's the thing when you, uh, when you actually get to put pull ropes out and okay, we've trained on this a hundred times. Let's go, you know, put a guy over the edge and you're going to go save that person. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, that's such a small piece of, of, uh, of opportunities in anything that we do. You know, you see these grand rescues all across the country of whether it be, you know, pulling people out of windows on fires and we just, the numbers on that aren't tremendous, right? Like you might pull a handful of people out of a fire in your entire career. So it's the same thing as when you get to 
okay, here, this is it. This is your, <laughs> this is your moment. Yeah. This is a legitimate emergency. And this is an opportunity to actually execute that skill set, which is, yeah, that's huge. That which, you know, which begs the question, are you, not you, Chris Pierce, but are you the, the individual firefighter prepared to do your job when called for? And I spent enough time around you to know that that's an important thing for you. So how do you, um, you know, when I think about the necessity of preparation for our people, how are you doing that each day? How are you, how are you coming in and preparing your guys every day for the expected level of performance? Well, and again, so, uh, and I know it's one of those things that we talk about that some of that, a lot of that preparation starts before you, you get there, especially at the fire station. And, uh, one of the things again with 12, that's changed even my day to day mindset, right? Is so I work tomorrow. So today it's, even though it's the weather's starting to maybe become nicer, I truly changed the way that I live my life on my second day off. And I have since I've been there. Uh, I try to eat a little bit lighter today. I uh, really focus on my hydration. I've pretty much, for the last decade, like I do not ever have any alcohol on my second day off. Again, because those are the things that tomorrow will limit my ability to function. Um, and so... It's just like it's it's it for for me that <laughs> that preparation starts there really the 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 day before, and then we come in and and right now you kind of just like anything else whether you're you're on a, a regular engine or or fire truck on at any other station out there you you see what the day brings you right and you talk to your members and sometimes sometimes you have technical members that come that are have all the certifications right like everything on paper looks correct but you you're not going to be able to put that person into a critical position uh are you telling me that there is a differential between qualifications and and capabilities absolutely okay and again that's part of your decision making as a supervisor it and not just as a supervisor uh, because when i was there in the back seat right if my my regular captain was off and we had someone come through that was either a non-tech captain that they put in that position that yeah. day or again same thing they give us a a roving captain who's just been out of the game for a little while right so right. they come in and now that person essentially pushes a lot of those critical decision makings uh back to you when in the backseat of hey man he's like if we get something today uh, either you're going to have to help me or you're going to have to lead up and do it. Right. Um, but again, that's part of that morning conversations that you have. Right. Yeah, no, I know. I hope I, my sense of humor came through. I was being yeah. incredibly sarcastic. <laughs> the There is a huge uh, need to maintain skill set and to be proficient. And, you know, especially in a world where, you know, in our special operations world, you have folks who are highly trained but who may or may not have had reps recently and, and like any skill that you possess as a firefighter in any world, quite frankly, but let's just, you know, we're talking Absolutely. about firefighting. Um, in our world, your skills are perishable. 
and even more so in, you know, special operations, right? If you're not using those on a regular basis, if you're not training on a regular basis, your skills will diminish rapidly. And then someone's going to hand you a bag of rope and carabiners and whatnot and ask you to tie to a tie back. And you're going to stand there like, like, a, you know, absolutely. And, and again, to, to a lot of those, the rovers that are out there that, that, that don't come and see it all that often, uh, they, it's really hard to train and just mentally build systems, right? If you don't have the physical rope and carabiners, if you don't have that stuff there, like you can look in the books and kind of have an idea, but we generally learn a lot better visually and it's really, really nice to, to learn hands-on, right? You go and you, you build those systems. And so we try to make ourselves available when people come in of, Hey man, is there anything you want to work on? You want to go pull some ropes out? Uh, just even throughout the, the regular days, because that's our opportunity for, for them to get their hands on that stuff right. and, and train on it. And the, the hardest thing is you kind of alluded to with, with most of the technical operations stations out there, there's not one of them that's like, maybe one of them that's only running two or three calls a shift, right? You're still coming into a very busy station, running a lot of calls, you know, uh, regular calls, right? Just, yeah. Just regular, standard, regular EMS calls. Yeah. Emers. And so like, even with the best laid plans of, Hey, we're going to get rope out today and, and look at stuff. Uh, you, you have to really be committed to do that. And, uh, sometimes the, the mindset, especially of the, the, the captain of, Oh, we're gonna have this big group drill and everyone's going to come out and do it. And, you know, we got the two trucks there and, you know, you start getting busy and it, it really comes back to you as an individual to have that desire and go out and find that time of, you know, even just the most basic level of, of putting some stuff in your hand and, and doing it and just getting it uh, right in your head. Right. Um, well, the, uh, the kryptonite of every of every technician is the double long tail bowling, right? <laughs> yes. So, so that's you know you you talk about that. There's there's no amount of group training that is going to help you be proficient in your individual skill set. Yes, and um, I think that's something you know that personal accountability is really important, and is an uh, is you know a lot of times you'll hear folks say, hey, the the department needs to provide training for me, or the department needs to do this. However, we are individually. Uh, responsible for our own level of, of proficiency and firemanship uh, in our skill sets. And so I think that, you know, you touch on a really, really good point, which is that you as an individual have got to come grab a piece of rope and yeah. start tying some knots. And then you need to, you know, if you need to work on more complex systems, then grab a partner and go build a system. Yes. Right. It's, it's, you know, and you know, it, where can the organizational support come in? You know, we look at our, our transient, techs yes. who don't have a home and a, and a special operations station, but we want them to maintain their skill set. Well, can we provide opportunities? We need, you know, organizationally, we need to be looking for ways to give them opportunities to support themselves and, and for them to continue to build their skill set. But at the end of the day, it, it does boil down to that individual having a desire and, and, and recognizing the need to maintain that skill set. That's so important. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, you know, it comes back to that. You know, a lot of us, uh, kind of went through that, that mindset of if the guys have seen the stickers on some of the mirrors uh, around the places that, you know, you're the person most responsible for your safety. Right. And it's kind of the same thing that you're still the person most responsible for your training, your accountability, all the skill sets that we have. Like, right. uh, 
the department can only do so much. And I'm not saying that, that any department can always give you more opportunities and better ways to do it, but it still comes back down to well, your commitment okay. to it. Let me just, let me just say this. I have, I'm going to throw, throw Mr. Nobody under the bus here. I have been on training opportunities, departmental training, mandatory training, and seeing guys standing around and yes. then migrating to the back, right? Because there's this, there's a certain amount of vulnerability you have to have. Uh, if your skill set has diminished and you're, uh, you don't want to put yourself out there in front of your peers to put you in a tough spot. Absolutely. And again, right? some of that is, comes back to, uh, as you know, I, I do a decent amount of teaching through, mm -hmm. through the department with special operations as well. But on just on top of that though, when we have people come in, uh, so like, uh, so we kind of did a, a, an open house at station 12 a few weeks ago. Oh, as part of the training package. As part of the training package, because the, it was essentially a, uh, personal skills, self-reflection, I can't call it self-study review. Yeah, I can't call it evaluation. That's a dirty word. Uh, but, but so, but again, with that mindset of, of, we really wanted it to be, Hey, just come by the station. We'll pull some rope out. Mm -hmm. All are welcome. And, and let's do that. And so getting away from that mindset of if you come out here in a training scenario and your skills need work, that's exactly where we want you to be. And if you, if you as the instructor or the organization makes that person feel uh, bad, right, that they've been out roving, that they haven't had their hands on rope, but they've made the effort, they've come to training, and now you're going to make them feel embarrassed that their skills aren't at the same level that someone has that rope and all that opportunity every single time that they go to work, well, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get people that don't want to show vulnerability, and they're going to move into the back and they're not going to improve their skill set. Right. Uh, and so a lot of that still can come back on to, to the people that are running those, those things that, you know, this is our opportunity to really make guys better and find things that they can improve on. Yeah. Well, there's, there's definitely a, a tone that the instructor can set. And I think it's important the, that whoever's leading training is identifying, you know, really who needs, work and giving them uh <laughs> giving them a safe space yes to right. to reflect and to work on their skill set um because at the end of the day the consequences of that individual not having a good skill set could be life or death and not to put make it too heavy but that's the the reality is that um the reason we're training is to develop and maintain a skill set that can save people's lives that's the point yes. so i always i've always thought to myself like you know, there's been times when I, when I have been afraid to raise my hand or to ask a question or to step forward and, and take the lead on a, on an evolution, knowing that, um, I was going to, that my skills were rusty Yes. and, uh, I, you know, I look back and go, God, dude, that is exactly the time when I should have put myself in that hard seat in that hard position, uh, in the hot seat, if you will. Yes. And, uh, you know, taking my lumps because when the tones drop and it's a real call, I don't want to be, I don't want to be in a position where somebody's, uh, life, uh, you know, where one of our citizens lives is in harm's way, or one of my partner's life is in harm's way. You know, you're, you're about to go over the edge and I'm like, Oh, hold on. I gotta, I'm not really certain about my system that I just tied up here. Yes. Yeah. That this was your opportunity 
to do this in in as sterile of an environment as we could right. create for you. Yeah. So how do we so how do we make those environments better for our guys to train in? Well, that's kind of something we've been talking about a lot. And again, some of it comes down to that attitude. It's really um, we're talking about when those groups of people come together of really trying hard to maybe not like point at an individual, but really go, hey, so listen, guys, uh, we're going to do this evolution. Like, so right now we're doing steep angle, right? We're doing steep angle on Camelback Mountain. Mm -hmm. So... Like that's my bread and butter. Like where that evolution is, like that's that's Are we something. training that up above the head wall. Uh, we're doing it right there at the rails. Like where oh, our oh, copy right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where like it's our real life scenario. This is you know if we're bringing someone down the rail system, this is the system we're going to build. This is where we're going to build it, and this is what it's going to look like. And so I know that system really well. So if I just go up to make training go quicker, and say okay, I'm going to run it. That my twelve guys are going to be on it. It's, you know, instead of doing that, it's, it's, hey, man, you know, I'll I'll still kind of help move everything along, but who who else wants to run it with me? And so instead of just putting somebody out there all by themselves, you kind of take that, for me, that senior advisor role almost. Okay. If you allow them to go forward, so now they, they're going to do everything, but when they get lost, you just, you can kind of prod them. Can nudge them. And nudge them. And then the same thing with the whole system. You get someone that's not normally building an anchor system. Hey man, you want to build this anchor system? So again, I might put one of my guys with a rover to help them build that, that system. And so you, you take the, you still put all of your people in place in, in those critical positions, but you still bring other people with them and let them do the skill set and kind of create those in like almost miniature supervisors, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that you, you know, know, have experience and have the abilities to do that stuff. And so I think that that has made at least some of that coming forward a little bit uh, less of a spotlight mm. because now it's you and kind of a partner doing it, which is, again, the way that we function normally, right, is there's very few things that we do outside of being on a four-person fire truck. And so it's that same thing of, you still put them in that position, but you allow there to be a, a closer support around it. I like that. I think it's important that we uh, think about the way we treat uh, human beings, right? There's a great Brunacini quote. He says, 2% of what you do, this is talking about being a boss, mm-hmm. 2% of what you do is tactical, 98% of it is human. Absolutely. And human problems are emotional. And so we have to be, you know, like I, so I've started as an instructor when I teach, I started to think about the, the men and women who are students, you know, in special operations or wherever it is, the academy or wherever. I think like, where are they coming from? You know, where are they, what are their concerns? So try to be more empathetic and then bring the teaching to them, to their level. And so, you know, especially when, you know, in firefighters where, no, they, our, our folks want to do a good job. Yes. And so if, if they have, you know, when they show up to training, they showed up. Yes. Right. They started by, they got there. That's step number that's, one. That's half the battle. Yeah. And if we identify that, you know, Hey man, this guy's here. He, it, because he's here, he probably wants to do a good job. So my responsibility is to figure out where they are at 
and bring the training to them because it doesn't do them any good. If they're at level five and I bring the training in at a level hundred and yes. my expectation is way up here and I'm like, and I shame them and go, what the hell is your problem? Everybody else is at level hundred. What's your problem? Yeah. I am going to drive a wedge for that person and that person's going to, it's made that much harder for them to get to where they need to be. So instead, you know, I feel like I like your approach. Let's find ways to provide scaffolding and support and structure to get that person to where they need to be. Yes. Cause at the end of the day, it's about serving the mission and getting these guys operationally ready. Um, me shaming them doesn't do any good. Yeah, all it does is is reduce the chances of them coming to the next training. Right. Or they they're asking, "Hey, who's teaching that?" Oh, well, it's uh-huh. it's Chris. Uh-huh. I, yeah, Chris man, is I, a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, not really. Uh, He's really a I've, nice guy. I've had my moments. I've had <laughs> my moments because again, for me, uh, again, as you said, no, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Like, so I have a I have a mindset for training. Yeah. Right. Where that I'm willing to create this safe space and stuff like that, but part of that is I create that safe space, and when we're on an actual call, that changes my now expectation level mm-hmm. of now you've come to this emergency, and now my expectation is is that we've given you this <laughs> very specific yeah. opportunity, and now you're there, and and it's um. You, you're not performing at the level. And now it's, Hey man, if you can't do it, I'm going to find somebody that can, like it's, right. it moves away from that, you know, safe space into this is now critical. This is now a, an important right. time frame, And, uh, so like even the guys on my truck, know with the, when it comes to that rescue, right. Uh, the guys that can do that double long tail bowl and that, that do their skills, that's going to be the person that me as the rescue supervisor, I'm going to tap the players that I see that have been successful in training around the station. You know what I'm saying? It's so it's, uh, again, one of the, the things that has come through that, that some of our nine, five sevens talk about and it goes back to our older school nine, five sevens that every day is also an audition. Right. And it's, so it's that same, you know, you give them the, the opportunities, but you're also watching for, for people that, that are coming through the system that get it, that are committed. And you know, that's so that the day here, even if you struggled here, but you committed and you worked on your skills and it's like, all right, that's, they've moved forward. You know, I'm going to give, you know, you might get the tap to yeah, go, go well, get them. Part of, you know, we're building a team. Yes. And you know, you, you you have to get your, your players have to demonstrate their, their commitment and their capacity and, um, and your job as a team leader, you know, as a trainer, as a coach, as a mentor, is to get people ready to operate yes. at the highest levels. And so, you know, I think the it's incumbent upon us to find ways to help people be successful. Um, and like you said, when it, when it's an emergency and it's time to go, there's there's a time for there's a time for training and coaching, yes. and there's a time for uh, high levels of performance expectation. Yes, and you know. We have to, you know, as a leader and as a, you know, this is, I find, I find this very, very important as a, as a company officer, as a leader, as a coach, as, as an instructor, um, you know, my leadership has to be flexible and, you know, there's a time and a place for which I'm applying those different things. Yes. So, you know, when we're on the mountain or we're in the middle of it, okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll share an incident and in, for instance, uh, we were working on a, and I'm not going to name names cause you know, no, that's if you know who you are, if you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> so we were working a mountain rescue high up on the mountain and, uh, we had a, 
we needed we were just below the three quarter LZ and we needed to move uh, about a hundred yards up to get to the three quarter LZ and it was hotter than Hades. We got these this kid, fourteen years old, dehydrated kid. He's in the Stokes basket, and do you remember this call? Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, we had hiked all the way up there with all of our gear. We're hot. We're miserable. We're tired. I think it was our second rescue of the day, so we're we're beat down. Well, and we had to do that hike twice, right? Because we had a second, second patient, patient, right? To do the so same thing with. helicopter flies in. <laughs> insert some sound, sound effect. <laughs> helicopter comes in. Rescue hero jumps off the helicopter, comes down, and uh, freshes a daisy and meets us. And one of my firefighters and this firefighter are uh, on ends of the stoke basket. We're trying to move this thing. And it's, the ground there is incredibly bouldery and very awkward and very tough terrain. And our crews were thin because we had two separate kind of patients, two yes. separate patients, not kind of patients, two separate patients that we were moving. And so we're spread out. So our resources are limited. And so there's three of us trying to move this Stokes basket. And one guy snipes at the other. The, the guy who's fresh as a daisy yeah. comes in and says, <laughs> I know a better way and starts sniping. And my firefighter loses his mind. And and so I had to, <laughs> I immediately had to snap. And hey, that right there is unacceptable. We've got work to do. Focus. This is what, this is the plan execute yeah and then we executed the mission got the patient off the mountain we went down to the uh, you know off the mountain by the time we got off the mountain everyone's heads had cooled off and we went and had a conversation about it yes and that is the time to talk right there's so my point in telling the story is when you're in the heat of the moment sometimes as a leader you need to just pull out all the stops cut yep. people off be very authoritative yes. and uh what's that what do they call that leadership style Authoritarian, yeah, author- yeah. You need to wield, yeah. you need to wield your authoritarian leader's hat, yes. Uh, and then you come off the mountain, you soften things up. Now you have time for some just a conversation about behavior management and attitude, and yes, you know, yeah, and, and especially with that, and as with all things, it, there's balance, right? So if you walk around with that big "I'm the boss" hat, and like I'm always loud and I'm always you know over the top with it, uh, you lose something. But it's it comes back to that that. Do you think people will stop listening to the noise? Is that what you're saying? Maybe, maybe. Uh, and so, but for me, what it always kind of rolls back to is some of those when when truly there was stuff going on, like real life decisions was with World War II stuff. There's some great quotes that come out of there. Mm-hmm. And for me, that that uh, the one that I think really falls in line with that how to properly use that tool. Mm-hmm is uh, Winston Churchill, which is speak softly and carry a big stick, right? Uh, which is, hey, man, I've got it in my back pocket. Like, if I need to be the biggest a-hole on the mountain or on the, the call or whatever, like, I can be that guy or gal or just supervisor. Let's go with that. Uh, but I don't, I don't use that tool every day. I, you know, most of the time it's conversational and it's, directive and you know and positive or uh just little nudges but when i come over the top everyone stops and goes oh crap (laughs) right and he means business yes yeah yeah i think you know and this can be applied when we're talking about it in the context of mountain rescues but any anything any leadership moment like you, you know there's a time when you know when you're in the firehouse 
you don't need to be yelling and screaming and hollering no. and bossing people around. You know, that's an opportunity for the informal leaders to lead. And, you know, you let the, you let the, the folks in the firehouse have um, their space and your leadership can be much more subtle and much more, uh, you know, you have a lot more time on your hands to, to work through stuff. Yeah. You know, to, to, to navigate, you know, a lot more discretionary time to kind of navigate personnel issues and to navigate human beings, right. To go back to the, you know, the 98% of what you do yeah. is human beings. And so I think that it's so, it's so important as a leader to be thoughtful about your people, um, to think about what their perspective is, think about where they're coming from, what their influences are that day, et cetera, versus coming in with your own agenda and being a bully. Yes. Uh, not a, or a bully or, or, you know, like, or only thinking about yourself when you show up to the station, right? Yeah. Hey, I have an agenda for the day. Well, what about the other human beings that yes. work there? Right. And I think the other thing is not to, to drive this too far, but the responsibility of the company officer is to look at your folks and identify what their needs are. And so I'm not talking about just like the, I think it's, it's their training needs and their, you know, their personal development needs organizationally and their, you know, where are they at socially in the firehouse, right? Are they fitting in? Are they not fitting in? Why not? Right. Mm -hmm. If you're not paying attention to that, then I think you're missing the, you're missing the boat. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So if, again, uh, if you're, you're going through and your full commitment is we're going to train every day and like, this is what we're focusing on and it's, it's all that, but there's still a disconnect within the members of your truck, maybe and instead of focusing on, Hey, we're going to go and do this drill that we've already done before that you've already shown skills in. Maybe today's a good day for all of us to go get a cup of coffee Mm -hmm. and, sit around and talk and actually get to know each other, which we have a good opportunity to do when we eat. That's one of the best places on the job is, is sitting around a chow, but just again, sometimes, uh, especially in a bigger station, in a multi-company station, the tables get bigger. The conversations tend to separate, uh, into, to areas around that. Uh, and so sometimes it's, it's you know, you need to have smaller spaces, smaller conversations yeah. to, especially with the, the members of your truck, uh, just to, to build those relationships and to really, that's where you get to know people and truly identify their life things that they're bringing to the fire station that you may or may not know or see and go, oh, okay, well this is, you know, when you're going through a bad time financially, your kids doing whatever. Whatever it is, like that's generally when that that stuff opens up. People don't come in to the fire station in the morning and say, "Hey, man, my kid ran away last night." Mm. You know, then it's you know whatever, just stuff yeah. like that. Uh, maybe they tell you that that kid ran away last night, but it's just that general stuff. There's the the day to day things that that are pulling them down. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's a great Paul. You follow Paul Combs? He's a fire service. I, sh- I sh- let's say I should, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul Combs is a fire service uh, cartoon. He's a fire firefighter. Okay, and uh, he has uh, he does these comics that. Well, that I like comics, so I probably have seen I need it. To, I just I'll don't share know. some with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but anyways, there's this one that shows these two firefighters sitting in the back seat, and uh, one of them 
uh, has a sign around his neck that says, I'm thinking about committing suicide or something like that. And, um, the other guy's looking at him like, you know, across the back seat going, you know, just kind of looking at him. And then the subtitle below is, you know, it's never this obvious or something like yeah, that. Okay. Right? I've seen, yeah. I've seen that one. Yeah. That one. And so I think about that, like, yeah, the, I don't care whether you are the, the, the captain in the station or you are the backseat firefighter, the senior, the junior firefighter, whatever, you have to be paying attention to the men and women who are working around you because you just, there are signs and they are not as obvious as a placard hanging around a guy's neck. Yes. Um, and, you know, suicide and depression and anxiety and, and post-traumatic stress are very real considerations in our work. And, you know, we, I had the opportunity to sit and talk to uh, Carrie Ramella a little while back. And uh, I don't remember what episode it is. Go Tre- look it up. Tremend- tremendous resource. Huge it's been around a resource. long time. Right. But when we, when we talk about what it is that gets us, um, the, you know, the way that we, the way that we ameliorate that is human connection. Yes. Right. And, and being, you know, as a company officer, you got to set the tone for that being a little bit vulnerable and, and connecting with people. And I don't mean you got to like dump all your uh, dump everything on the table, but you have to make yourself available to people Yes. um, by starting the conversation and giving people room to just share some of the things that they got going on. And at the very least, they don't have to tell you all the details, but if they just say, Hey man, I'm in a bad spot today. I just need, I need some space, whatever that looks like. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. That's such a, an important tool that a leader has. Absolutely. And yeah, that's again, if you're not watching that stuff or, or having those conversations and just be so focused on, on just correcting the problems, but not actually looking at what's causing your, your problems. You're just, you're kind of putting band-aids on stuff of, Hey man, you kind of snapped on that guy and they're like, don't do that again. And then, Hey man, you've been snapping a lot lately. You know, what, you know, you got something going on. Is it just, you know, and trying to start that, that conversation, um, with, with those people. And that's, if you're not watching that stuff, not just as a supervisor, but as at any position on the truck, as a brother, yeah, as a sister on this job, as a family member, the, because, you know, again, maybe they're not willing to, to open up to the supervisor to the captain because they don't, right. Um, they're they're afraid of the consequences of doing that, but if you recognize things in the in any position on within the the truck or the station structure, because sometimes, especially at again multi company station or stations with that shift rotation, they might not be willing to talk to their people because now they're afraid of that that sign right around their neck. Mm-hmm. But they might talk to someone on the other truck. They might talk to someone on the other shift that they don't see every day. Uh, and spend that time with. So just watching, watching station environment is everybody's job. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and the, the, one of the hallmarks of a high performing team is trust. Absolutely. So, you know, you have to, this kind of goes kind of full circle. We talk about training and empowering guys to, to participate in training and you've got to make them feel like, uh, you got to give them room to build trust and, and, you know, shame doesn't work in that environment. If we're shaming people, you are, you are not allowing them to trust you. Yes. And so, you know, same thing on the, uh, you know, just in the firehouse in general is building the trust with people. And I think trust building happens in very small ways. It's not some, you know, grand, grand gesture where you walk in and go, 
I trust you. Yes, you know, it's yes. it's the small things where you say, you know, like even this is gonna sound really dumb, but allowing someone to you take that? All right, pause. That's yeah, pause. You're about to have a great thought though. I apologize for this interruption. Chris had a dude coming over to measure some window coverings. Quite the interruption. Anyways, here we go. All right, and we're back. <laughs> okay, so we were rudely interrupted, and uh, so rudely. our train of thought is completely derailed. Um, so we have no idea what the hell we were talking about. That being said, <laughs> um, you know, Chris, the you know, I, I I really appreciate where your head is at and your philosophy is at, and I know, um, you know, clearly that is a a reflection of your, you know, the quality of your character. And some of that is, <laughs> don't let it go to your head. <laughs> I just, you know, so I think about the, you know, the influences we had in our life. And, and, and one of the influences, and you touched on this very briefly when we first opened the mics and started talking, was the fact that your dad died in the line of duty. And so I would, I would love for you, if you're willing, to share the story um, of what happened to your dad and then how that has influenced and shaped who you are as a person and as a fire captain or firefighter in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as I kind of talked about, my dad was a, was an engineer in the Phoenix Fire Department, uh, part of the hazmat team, and was killed November 15th, 1984 uh, on a hazmat call. So the thing that you have to kind of remember with that time frame, just just to go back as, as I kind of ex- tell this story and people might think to themselves, like, why would they make these decisions at that time? That, that you know, this series of events that, that caused my dad's incident. And the thing that you have to remember is hazmat, the way that we see it today, was not that way at the time. Uh, hazmat at that time was very aggressive. It was essentially almost like how we fight house fires now. It was very go, you know, make a decision, you know, life or death. And if it's life, you know, if there's a, a savable life that they're throwing everything at it right now uh instead of if kind of looking at it so they had an individual down uh where now doesn't exist anymore but the manzanita speedway down down in south phoenix just on the other side of that there was a gas station that had some large uh storage tanks one of the storage tanks in there was toluene which good cleaning agent and, and and kind of that so but a large toluene tank and so they drained the tank and had hired an individual to to go in and do some cleaning. Well, the the property owner didn't go through at the time you know, any kind of registered contract. He just he got a guy hired a dude. Yeah, he hired a, essentially a you know a, a guy at Home Depot to clean his toluene tank out and give him some scrubbers. And so when they got to the top of this this tank, again, think of the time frame. Not the same uh, confined space laws around the country well i'll say this 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 event is one of you know your dad's event is one one that changed and shaped the the future of hazmat so the way the reason we have hazmat the way we know it today you know with some of the mechanisms that are in place are directly related to your dad's yes line of duty death yes absolutely uh so the hole that's on top of this that the 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 manhole essentially where he's going to go through a porthole wouldn't allow him to go through that wearing an SCBA. So the plan was that he was going to go through that. He was, the operator was going to hand him an SCBA through the hole uh, 
He's going to put that in, climb on it, and go down to the, and do his business. So as soon as he broke that level within the tank, it's, you're in that, that other space. There's no oxygen. He took one breath in there, fell down into the bottom of the tank into three inches of toluene sludge. So again, not only is there no air in that space anymore that that's breathable, uh, he lands in a sludge that essentially, if he was alive, probably would have drowned him. So you just you put those factors together, and uh, we were never in rescue mode, or shouldn't have ever been in rescue mode. We should have been in recovery mode from from the get go. Right. But so uh, the the call gets dispatched. This guy's in there for whatever reason. Tricks the light. The the people on top looking down into this dark hole, uh, looking at him in a reflective sludge, believe that he's moving. So they go with the mindset that we might have a savable life. And so the principles that they kind of went with is that, that upper and low, lower explosive limit, right? So because there is a 100% full uh, atmosphere of toluene in there, that it's too rich to burn. So they're going to cut this tank open with saws, with circular saws, like K-12 that anyone's ever operated. One of those creates a tremendous amount of sparks. Right. Uh, but again, viable patient, using your your very basic hazmat knowledge, right, as that time. And then for added safety, we're going to have a person with a hose line behind them spraying where the cut is to reduce that that spark load. And we're going to put another individual on the top Sprang into the tank where they are cutting to, again, really reduce that spark load, right? Well, what they didn't think about at that time frame is the individual on the top spraying in is now not just introducing water. He's also introducing a tremendous amount of air, Mm. which is now changing that environment inside Essentially ventilating the tank Essentially, yeah, through that Venturi effect of creating the, those circles and pushing uh, the toxic gases out and, and bringing air in through the through the hose line. Uh, so as the operation is going, they are worried that if there is an incident, the person that's on the top may be in a bad position, right? So they, they pull that individual on the top that has changed the environment in this, inside of it, but is now uh, change the environment, but it is essentially still reducing the sparks that come through on the inside, pull them off the, the fire that's going or the, uh, the, the sparks that are at the bottom. One gets away from the tank itself, creates a small brush fire at the feet of my dad and his, and his partner. And so the, the individual on the hose line turns their hose line real quick uh, to, to knock that down. And just, you have that perfect storm of, of things that changed and in that moment, the you know the 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 atmosphere inside is perfect, and it it goes off. It's uh, the classic Swiss cheese model. Absolutely, you like just, just you every have, little phase, every had little a slight thing change that had any one of those individual pieces not been changed, we probably wouldn't be talking about this incident at all. Like it had just been another near miss that we didn't even know was a near miss, right? Uh, and you'd be, you know, further down the road and hazmat would have continued to function the way it did until there was a different incident. Uh, so, you know, the, the tank goes off, my dad's killed instantly. Uh, and then the, the department was, was your dad operating the saw or where was he in the stack? Yeah, so he was operating the saw. He was next to, uh, to 
uh, Big Bob Arthur. So I uh, just from like me, I remember Bob being at the the funeral, just you know bandaged up. Like he he took a hit. Well, I heard there was. My understanding is there was a bunch of folks who were injured, five or six or oh, so yeah, or more, you, maybe. You you blow up a big tanker, <laughs> yeah. uh, something you're gonna you know you cause a lot of damage. Just my my dad took the brunt of the the hit in the way that the uh, the flap came out mm-hmm. with the combination of the explosion. And if that wouldn't have got him, he was thrown into a brick wall that that retention wall that it, you know had this thing leaked that it would hold that liquid right. inside. So, uh, just if luck, you know, and again, it, if you're going to go probably better to go instantly. And then made really sure that if one thing didn't get him, the other thing was get him. And if that didn't get him, the third thing would have got him. Yeah. Uh, and all of that took freight place in, you know, the blink of an eye. Instant. So very, very instantaneous. How old are you at the time? Uh, six. So old enough that I remember like the days, around it like i remember the day and i remember the funeral and i have memories of my dad right because yeah. i'm just there so like for me especially growing up when i hit that age especially with my children that i have that i knew that like that was kind of that breakover point for me right that okay like if something happens whether it's on the job off the job car accidents uh just life uh, that we've had that breakover point that my kids will remember me so I don't know. That was kind of a kind of a big milestone. Yeah. Uh, growing up, what that call did not just for me, but as you kind of talk to uh, in the hazmat community, is it created that speed bump that uh, anyone that's been on a hazmat call <laughs> may not always be so happy about that speed bump, but it's it's there, uh, not just here in in Arizona, but essentially around the country. Right. Of hey, we're going to stop and research what we have and really see what this this thing is. Because uh, in the hazmat world, where the time frame of the phone call to hazmat being on scene and starting the cut was within 30 minutes. And so if you think about Station 4 responding from downtown Phoenix yeah, you know, to the Manzanita Speedway uh, and getting there into this scene and starting to make decisions and cut into a tank of toluene, a 30-minute time frame is actually pretty quick. Uh, where now we would have seen, you know, probably within the first handful of minutes of this is what we've got, this is what they're in, we drop meters in and go, nope, this is a recovery. And, you know, we'd have gone a 100% different way. So with with me, you know, people have asked me over the years, you're like, well, you know, does that make you angry? Why would you want to follow in in your dad's footsteps and that stuff and like i was never angry about it right because there is even at a young age i think children you might not fully understand it but you have the understanding that there is an inherent risk in what uh firefighters and police officers and uh, soldiers and anyone that's in that that realm does right there's there's a risk to that uh and those risks have costs so had that incident not happened, had it not been my dad that day, right? It would have been somebody else's dad some other day, mm-hmm. right? That would have caused this change later in, you know. Uh, so it's a, a life-changing event for me and for, for the fire service. But it's also 
we lost a member instead of 10 members making the same mistake somewhere else. Like if you look back a handful of years, even before that, you have the Kingman rail tanker explosion where essentially Kingman lost their entire department, right? Right. Just, just instantly on a slightly different, you know, type of incident, but same deal. Uh, <laughs> and even that didn't cause as big of a national ripple in the hazmat world as my dad's incident did. Right. Because as, uh, especially at the time under Bruno, and I think one of the best traditions of our department history is that when we lose a member, instead of kind of circling the wagons and like holding it tight to the vest, it's, hey, we had this incident and we really kind of set it out there to the rest of the nation of this is what we had on this call go sideways on us. And we don't ever want it to ever happen to us again. Yeah. And so we don't ever want it to happen to anyone again. And so when we do our reports and that, that stuff generally goes national and is made available so that, that uh, people will, in the other events that we've had throughout the years, which we've really been very lucky in the numbers that we do have, Right when you compare us to other departments of our size and history, that uh, the number of line of duty deaths that we have is lower than most of the other departments, and that's I think because of that commitment to not continue to make the same mistakes that kill our members over and over and over again. So, like that part of it is such a big piece of it to me, right? Because as I kind of talk to, life happens, and like there are kids out there every day that lose their parents for no good reason other than just life, right? Cancers and just whatever it is. Uh, So for me, especially in the longer perspective of life of the, my dad died for something, right? That it, it changed what we, what we do and what the, the fire department does. I don't know. It's just something to. <laughs> no, that's a. It's a silver lining for sure to think that, you know, to understand that, you know, there was. It wasn't in vain. You know, the the community, the fire service community, made definitive changes, and I'm sure that those changes have saved lives. You know, other other firefighters' lives, and 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 I'm sure it saved. You know, civilian lives as well. Absolutely. Right? We talk about that risk, you know, re- recovery versus rescue mode and, you know, making the decision, knowing when to make that decision. That's something we are much, much more cognizant of now and, and much more thoughtful about on the front end of these events. So it's huge. Yes. And, and it's something that we're not just talking about having at, again, that command level, right? Like we really want all of our members at every level to start to do that same kind of mental checklist of yeah. what are we risking, you know, and then it comes back to just the dark great, you know, we'll risk a lot to save a lot, risk a little to save, save property, risk nothing for what is already lost. And we ingrain that and teach that to our members the first day of the Academy. Yeah. And so as we get further on, there's a higher expectation that, uh, it moves out of that task level and really hits hard in that strategic and that tactical level. But it still needs to be happening at all levels because if you see something that's, hey, man, this is like we've moved into, <laughs> we are we we are putting ourselves in a spot where we might lose members or 
for me, I don't even look at it anymore as um, the possibility of like loss of life for a member with some of my strategic decision-making. It's, am I putting someone in a position that they may have a career-ending injury or life-altering injury uh, and not just a line-of-duty death? Right. Because the line-of-duty deaths get a lot of focus and attention, right? Um, and there are, I don't know, parades and, you know what I'm saying? But You, you get can, bunting and ribbons in your... You know, all that stuff. Yeah. It, like there's pomp and circumstance to, to that. But if you have a guy go through the roof and break his back and he never works again uh, and never functions well for the rest of their their adult life, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, a, a fate different. I don't I want to say worse than death, but a fate different wow. than, than death and certainly life-altering. Uh, that you have to be cognizant of the decisions that you make that to put people in those those positions. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've always, the question that I had in my mind was, was how has your father's death shaped you as a company officer? But I, but I think I see the answer, right? I see it. Like it's, it has framed your ability to consider risk and I think that your your appreciation and understanding of death and dying as as it relates to the fire department as it relates to you know the the consequences of bad things happening on the fire ground um you know it's almost like i I almost hear you saying that death is is one thing, but it's not necessarily the worst thing that can happen to you right yes. it's definitive and it's a it's a hard thing, and there's serious consequences that go with that. But there's also tremendous consequences of serious injury, and and what are the what are the t- you know things that you as a as a individual have to live with as a person who's been injured for their you know term you know, not terminally but uh, physically damaged to a point of no return to work. Yes. Right. And how does that make you feel as a company officer? Yes. Yeah. That's and again, I uh, for the, the the people that are out there that that have had that line of duty death on their truck, like I, you know, how you move forward from that. Like I, again, I, only that very small group of people can ever really know the answer to that. Right. And, uh, but there are more of the people out there that have had these injuries to their members that, that, uh, like that's the one that pushed them out of the field. That's the one that, you know, uh, like now they walk with a limp. And so injuries aren't, like some entries are just unavoidable in what we do. And so again, there's some, you have to have some acceptance at at every level. Again, as you as an individual coming into this, that you may become injured. And, and I think most people have a good understanding of that, but that comes back around to that. You're the person most responsible for your safety and being aware of your surroundings and the, the stuff that we talk about. Uh, but at that, the other piece of that is, you can only be careful and work properly in the places that we put you. <laughs> All right. And so, and that, that's just that different perspective of, of mindset. And so really coming back to what that does to, from, from my dad's incident is just the, the things, the, the lessons that we learned from that, uh, I think not always directly, like they don't talk about them with being my dad's, but really from that Bruno 
time frame and the events that he as the the chief had and witnessed around the country i think really built that the very basic firefighter friendly things that we talk about within uh, his command stuff who come out of these events and so like it just you know my dad's event built into all that stuff that that he talked about uh, and that our department has continued to to kind of push those messages and so like this this especially I had a, a young member call me the other day because they're in the uh, the academy right and essentially had this conversation with me again and go hey uh, my truck in the academy has been assigned your dad's incident and so our job is to research uh, the events of it, uh, learn about it, and then do a presentation of it to the the greater uh, class within the academy. And so he really wanted to come from it from a different perspective. Hey, like we've got the, like this is what happened. There's video, like we've got this this general knowledge that we can research. He goes, but I really wanted to. He wanted to talk to me yeah. and see how that affected you know, my life and really bring not just the, the, the nuts and bolts of the incident, but really the, you know, how it affected me and what drove me to, to come into the fire service. And it really came back down into that. What we've kind of talked about is that, the just the fact that with so much stuff did come out of that incident, so much good. And it just that, you know, what that has done for me mentally i guess as as a grief mechanism and then pushing it into my decision making of my motivation to get on the job uh, because growing up around the fire service and still loving the very mindset of what we do and what we uh, try to accomplish day to day with with helping people and knowing that that how excited my dad was about his time on the job and really relatively short time on the job because he was uh got on the job in 79 and then was killed in 1984 almost 85 so really a relatively short amount of time frame when you think about now the time that it would take for you to be an engineer on ladder four hazmat (laughs) right so like had a lot of career stuff happen in a very compressed time frame yeah (laughs) Well, when you were six years old, like how how did being surrounded by the fire family, like what what did that look like to you? How did that feel? It, well, before my dad's death, uh, I certainly remember like birthdays and just trips to the station. And the thing that uh, out of that time frame that is uh, as one of the strangest things to remember is the fire stations have a smell. Mm. And it's, you know, I think it's probably just a combination of dirt and diesel fuel. But it's a very vivid memory connection to me with the smell of the fire station mm. from that age, right? And it's kind of funny that I don't, when I walk into the station anymore, I don't smell it anymore. Like it doesn't, I, I don't get that same uh, memory connection walking into the, the station every day because it, I think probably the 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 uh <laughs> the fuel that the trucks are using is probably different and just overall things are, are different, right? But every once in a while I'll be in uh 
an older station and that that right combination of things will hit me. It's probably mm-hmm. toxic and not good for me at all. <laughs> but like I'll get you mean that a physically or emotionally. Yeah, uh, physically, physically. <laughs> not, yeah, uh, where I'll get that that combination of diesel fuel and <laughs> and dirt or whatever it is, and it will instantly take me back to that coming into the station as a child, riding mm-hmm. on the trucks down there and being around that part of the family really you know it's that because that's where it was that's where you you had a lot of the youth of birthdays and family gatherings and christmas and stuff like that uh it was all <laughs> there central to the fire station right and then uh after my dad's event i you know there's the the still people coming and helping out around the house for a long time when we were trying to kind of get our feet of, you know, my mom was 29 years old. My dad was 32 when he was killed, right? So it's like you had a, a couple who were kind of just in the the front end of building the momentum into the, the rest of your life. And so to to lose my dad at that age, it just changes that whole dynamic, right, of what, what it was, especially there in the, in the early 80s. Like, you know, my mom didn't have a lot of job history and like it was just a, a different time to suddenly – not have the person that was working right uh go away and so just the, the that transitional time and then so as we did we moved away and i spent some time in some some other places but when we came back right so now i'm a, a teenager with interest to come on the job and we reached out to the department and, and the union specifically and it was instant right it was you know uh hey man you guys have been been gone but welcome back, come around. And so again, it's like you come right back in and you're fully re-encompassed and re-embraced by this, this family is because that's what family is, right? It's whether you're, you go away and you don't talk to your, your, your brother or your sister for, for 10 years when you come back around and then you guys are, are able to, to come to terms with whatever caused that or just life taking you away. It's well, sit down at the dinner table and it's, <laughs> come back into come back into this thing and that's really the experience that that I had is we came back and we were open open arms and brought right back in and then they've been stuck with me ever since so for good <laughs> or bad <laughs> you know I've watched I've watched you with your boys and uh you know at the beach going surfing and all that kind of stuff and you know do you think that um well, this is a dumb question. I think all <laughs> all life events shape the way we you know engage, right? Of course, but how if you can if you could put a finger on it, how do you think your dad's death shaped your behavior as a father? I think it's made me certainly more appreciative of my time that I have with my kids, uh, just because again, I mean. Uh, with anything, just it, whether it's on the job or age or whatever gets you right. Like there's no, there's no escaping death. We, we, no one gets out of this thing in the end. Uh, so hopefully it's way, way down the line. But, uh, if it's not, then I try to make sure that I build those good memories and have those experiences with, with my kids and my friends and, and, and really all with everyone around you. Right. Because if you're not appreciative 
of those things, whether the event is mine or somebody else's, uh, those things go away, right? And you can't ever make those connections again. Um, and so you just, you, you have to be present <laughs> for those things to, to happen. Uh, and so I've really enjoyed spending individual time with my kids and, and trying to, to not just put them in things, right. And have them and have their time. And they have to still, does anyone, especially as my kids are now coming into their teenage years, like there's going to be that transition, right. Of allowing them to go and start what it is for them to become young men. And, uh, and that our relationship will have to change with that time frame. And so that's going to be an interesting time for, for all of us. <laughs> I can only, uh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, and so that's that, that next big piece of the journey, because if the part of it that I love with all that time, right. If I fully run their lives for them and their decision makings and their, uh, like little life mistake stuff, there'll come a point where they are out in the world and they haven't been allowed to make decisions on their own and they're not going to be able to find direction. Right. Yeah. So like I look at both sides of that, like I, I hold them close as much as I can, but I also am trying to build them to be reliant for when, uh, those decisions, those next level decisions are a hundred percent on them, that they're also prepared for those things. That that is probably the crux of parenting right there is being able to allow your kids to make mistakes and to suffer the you know some of the consequences that come with them right those little get those bumps and bruises yes from their bad decisions <laughs> yes without completely cavitating their life um, but I think that's a really that's a really important perspective to have you said the word be present and I think that any one of us as parents would you know. It, it, well, we talk about leadership, right? Being a parent is being a leader. Absolutely. And, and being present as a leader is critical. This takes us all the way back through. All our, the way through, back through. through our whole, this is a thread that's kind of gone through our whole entire conversation. Absolutely. I think about the importance of being, considering the people who are around you, whether they be family, whether it be you know your your kids, your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, your subordinates, right? Being present and mindful of them and empathetic and thoughtful about what's going on in their lives and what's going in their minds and what's influencing them, et cetera. Being aware of that is so, so important. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's again, it's such the, 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 the half or more of what it is to, to be successful within uh, a supervisor in anything that you do, right? Whether it's the fire service or just in a regular supervisor job is that you, you have the piece of it that is the actual job that you need to, you know, make sure that things move forward. Uh, but the success of those things moving forward is how you interact with them and how you allow them to, to grow and to, to become successful and move forward. And the, one of the great things about, our fire service, especially once you've moved into the supervisory side of it, unlike a lot of the the worlds of, of working for a living, as I like to, <laughs> to call it, is 
we don't need to cut each other out at the knees to be competitive to move forward. Like the, the promotional process is certainly competitive, right? Uh, and so you can still take your knowledge and, and you don't have to give all of your secrets away to what you want to have happen. But you, you're still looking for the ability. You can't be mad at someone else's success within, within the, the organization uh, because it's, it's competitive in that you have to show up that day and, and do, do your stuff. But it's uh, <laughs> kind of lost where, what I was trying to say there. But what, really what, it, what I was trying to say is that it's, we're, it doesn't need to be cutthroat in the way that we move people forward. And especially as a supervisor, like I'm not threatened by another young member looking to move forward in our organization. Like I, because it, again, it doesn't, one, it doesn't affect me tremendously until that, that young member becomes my boss someday. And if he does become my boss someday, I want that experience to be that I spent the time, I nurtured, I saw their desire to, to do better and, and be better and to learn and expand and impart as much of my own experience and knowledge that, that they want <laughs> uh, to move forward. And then when we become peers, that we are truly peers and that we have conversations and that you know there's that mutual respect. And then when they move to that next level, if there's, if I have an ability at my level to help them move forward above me, if I'm happy at my position and I'm going to stay here that, you know, I look to, to make them successful because as we move people forward in the organization, their success is my success because I've helped them make our organization better. And you don't always see that in the, the, commercial world uh, because their success uh, means that you won't be able to have success because it's, you know, it doesn't always move the same direction. <laughs> right. This goes back to the idea of trust, right? Absolutely. If I am stepping on your neck to get ahead of you, you're never going to trust me. And if I do end up in a position of, of uh, organizational authority uh, over you, right? You're not going to want anything to do with me. Yes. Because I stepped on your neck to, get, so, to yes. get there. So you're not going to want to follow. You're not going to want to participate in anything that I have to say if I'm your boss and I stepped on you to get to my position. So, you know, that trust is, you know, it go, you know, you talk about being empathetic and, and, and nurturing and mentoring and developing each other and helping each other. You know, it takes me right back to when you and I were preparing for the captain's process you know, we went into the little room and we sat knee to knee, you know, yeah. me, you and Dan, and we, and we just shared, oh, this is what I'm working on. And then we were vulnerable with each other. So, well, this is my thoughts and ideas. And you would say the rain, you're dumb. That's a dumb idea. Don't say that. <laughs> you know, the way you're saying that makes you look like an idiot. Okay. Uh, so we shared with each other and we lifted it. And as much as we were competing with one another, yes, we were also lifting each other. And, you know, there's a, a, a statement, you know, you lift me and I lift thee and together we rise. Hmm. There you go. Right. So I feel like that's kind of this idea that we have to be strengthening and booing each other up, whether it be just helping each other. You know, we talk about being family and, and family is not about stabbing each other in the back and get, getting one over on another person. Yes. It's about being there together and, and growing um, together in the, you know, and, you know, 
I expect you to have my six in a in a life or death situation. Yes. You know, stepping on your neck or stabbing you in the back is not going to endear you to me. No. And not you're not going to want to save my life. No, when we when we find ourselves in the darkness of the fire, right. <laughs> right. That's where, you know, that's where it, that that trust becomes not just a thing that we we talk about in uh in station environment. It's where it becomes the literally that life or death that hey man it's we're in here together and we all we we're all we're gonna have <laughs> yeah exactly well hey man i i i really appreciate you uh on so many levels and i appreciate you taking the time to sit with me and and share you know your story and to share your philosophies i think that it's something uh that we can all learn to learn and grow from and i and i appreciate you you know, being uh, open and, and willing to, to share that stuff with, you know, me and however other many people want to listen to this. <laughs> hopefully someday it'll be in the millions or millions of people will have listened to you share your story and, and hopefully somebody can take a little something away from it. Um, that being said, any, uh, any final thoughts or any, anything you feel like you'd like to share anything uh, left unsaid? Man, we, we talked for a while. I feel pretty good about, about, uh, I think everything that I was really hoping to say, came out i don't want to try to force on <laughs> not you know things that okay that, let me ask you a closing question okay you lay it on me. what's your favorite surf spot oh i can't t- say that because it's already hard enough to get there <laughs> uh but it's near encinitas so let's go with that fair enough so. <laughs> thanks you, brother you've been there you know what it is thanks brother <laughs> appreciate you that's right good talk that was good man Hey, man, so special thanks to my brother, Chris Pierce, uh, for sitting down and rapping with us. I hope you got something out of that. There's so much that we can learn from our shared experiences, and uh, I'm grateful for the chance to have these conversations and, and talk about this stuff. If you dig this podcast, go on to uh, whatever platform it is that you listen and rate and review. Give me some feedback. Feel free to uh, subscribe uh, on whatever platform you're listening. I can't make it better if you don't give me any feedback. So feel free. Now go out there, get some.